I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Ballara, and this is the Know Your Why podcast. Today, I'm here with Bruce Peterson. Bruce is the apartment guy. He's a best-selling author, speaker, educator, and syndicator, syndicator of commercial and multifamily properties throughout Central Texas and Tennessee. Um, Bruce, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. appreciate you taking the time out. Well, glad to be here. I'm uh, flattered you asked. Yeah, no, I'm. Uh, we were talking before we started recording, but uh, just so people know, you your book, <laughs> this book was one of the first books I read for uh, when I wanted to get into syndicating, and, and I think it's I think it's a really a great perspective. So, um, why don't you kind of tell us about yourself, give us your background, and how you got into the space, and and then we'll kind of go from there. You know, I used to think I'm kind of different than everybody else, but I think there are a fair number of people that at least share some of my background. You know, I grew up fairly poor for a while, not not my whole childhood, but a good portion of it. We were living in the projects in South Texas. Um, you know, both parents are high school dropouts. I'm a college dropout myself. And being a college dropout, now I had a stint as a stockbroker for a year in, I think it was 1991. Uh, it's the year we went to Desert Storm. Uh, I was full commission. Uh, I was going to school to get a finance degree to become a stockbroker. I answered a, a, a want ad in the newspaper back then um, and thought, I need to start practicing my interviewing uh, for when I do get my degree. Well, hell, I got the job. I was like, uh, okay, I'm patting myself on the back. I think I'm a hero. I'm the biggest stud in the world. Then I start working there and realizing if you've seen the movie, The Wolf of Wall Street or Boiler Room, hell, that's all it was. I was a, uh, a high pressure sales guy. Instead of selling you cars, I'm selling you penny stocks is what I was doing. And it was a really, really rude awakening to what that world was. I wasn't on Wall Street. I was just here in Austin at one of the biggest over-the-counter firms in the country at the time that has since gone out of business because of the SEC. They came after them, similar to Jordan Belfort. So, you know, I had that little bit of a background. Then I fell into retail for about 20 years got to where I couldn't do that anymore. Uh, I'm a people person. So I did truly enjoy it for a little while, but then it just starts to break you down. Um, I saw myself progressing up the ladder, making more money, getting more responsibility and a shit ton more stress. So, you know, I'm 42 years old. I'm 5'8", 240 pounds, 100, 110 hour work weeks. There's no time to date or meet anybody. So I'm 42 years old with no relationship, never been married, don't have any kids. And I start to look around at myself going, what the hell am I doing? This sucks. So I walked away. I was depressed. I mean, who wouldn't be depressed? Um, so I paid cash for a house because I used to listen to Dave Ramsey. Then I realized I'm not financially broken. I don't need to listen to him. Um, I found people to teach me how to do real estate. Thank goodness. And, uh, but before I did that, I, I just kind of puttered around my yard for a year in the Austin suburbs, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I'm 42. I've got another, in my mind, 60 to 70 years. I got to figure some stuff out. I found a good coach. Uh, she taught me um, that 
it wasn't right for me to go into single family. I mean, it's a good thing to buy single family rental um, houses, but I didn't need to start there. It, she taught me that it's a good place to start, but you need to get yourself to commercial real estate as soon as possible. So she taught me how to invest in commercial real estate, multifamily. Um, so I learned how to underwrite. I learned how to find deals. Um some rudimentary teachings on how to raise money. A lot of that I had to figure out on my own, which is fine. You know, I got out there and I did it. But so I bought my first property in 2012, about a 48 unit in Austin and did fantastic with that. Um, and since then, we've syndicated, I think, eight or nine deals now, um, about 11 to 1200 units all throughout Central Texas. And we've started doing some development work in Tennessee, uh, within Nashville and Chattanooga. And that's retail, that's uh, hospitality, which is um, like a hotel, motel type thing, lots of office space. So, you know, we've done a lot of things now. My wife is my business partner. She's a CPA. And so she's the CFO of what we do. And I'm the CEO of everything we do. We're very vertically integrated. Everybody's talking about that right now. But we have our own management company, asset management company, our own construction company. We keep it all in-house the best we can. So we've, we've been doing it for a while. We've won a bunch of awards for it. And it's the best thing I've ever done. Yeah, I mean, that's that's great. Thank you for sharing all that. Do you, do you feel like you're... And AC didn't really like, you know, sort of in the stockbroker area, you didn't really like retail, but do you feel like those experiences helped shape you or, or do they, do they help you in any way when you got into the syndication space? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I would throw something else in there. First of all, retail taught me how to operate a PNL, have to stay within budget, how to hire and fire people. So I got a lot of skills there. Um, uh, within the stock brokerage world, you know, I had to go get trained. I had to get series seven and 63 certified. So, you know, there's a lot of learning that went into that as well. So I learned how to um, value companies. I and that really has helped a lot. But then another thing that people, I don't think really understand, I'm a baseball nut. I grew up playing baseball all day, every day. Um, Sandlot, that was my life growing up in South Texas. Anytime we weren't in school, we were playing baseball from sunup to sundown. I'm a baseball card fanatic. Uh, I just love everything about baseball. And baseball, really, yeah, it's a sport, but it's all stats. It's all statistics. So my num my brain has always been wrapped around numbers in some way. And everything I've done as a, uh, a young adult, maybe even uh, like in my teen years. So those three things really helped prepare me. Retail, probably the most, because it helped me become a leader. It taught me how to be a leader, how to lead people, how to hire people, how to train, groom, um, and then also to read the PL and manage to a PL. So that was probably the best thing I pulled from retail. Yeah. I, I think, you know, I, I find that everybody's past experiences seem to contribute in some way, whether they seem related when you start, that ultimately it, it's all, you know, life skills that you're that you're learning. So you pick and choose what what really helps you. Um so you you started with 48 units and then you've obviously grown a lot since then and you're vertically integrated. What did, how did you make that transition? Did you start out sort of trying to manage everything yourself or were you, you made a transition somewhere along the way into that, you know, management company? How did, how did that process go for you and your, your company? So at the beginning, being ignorant, you know, I have a coach, very experienced coach and a fantastic coach, but you know, being, being new to this, I'm just, Oh, I'm just going to obviously run it myself. I'm naive. The bank says, oh, hell no, you're not. You don't know what the hell you're doing. I'm willing to take a chance on you to a degree, but I am not. I had no job. I had no experience. 
I had a great coach and they knew the coach. So they knew I was in, I was in good hands if I would listen. So I had to convince them I would listen. But they said, I'm not also going to let you run your own asset with no experience. It's too much risk for me. So they forced me into hiring a third-party property management company. So what I did, um, that first property, we had a pool with a 10 by 20 deck. And right away, well, within about the first two months, I got a hold of a GC and talked to them about, let's take half of that deck and make a 10 by 10 office there. Because I didn't have an office on this 48 unit property. The person I bought it from managed it from an asset they owned down the street, which was 192 units. So it worked for them. For me to run my own thing without an outside management company, because they weren't they weren't terrible, but they weren't doing what I wanted them to do and how I thought they should do it. So um, we built the office. I hired my own property manager and I basically started my own management company with me because I wasn't married at the time. Uh, just me and a property manager. And that was it. Um, so I thought I was going to do it from the beginning. Banks said otherwise. And then I did everything I could to get ready um, as fast as I could to, to bring it kind of sort of back in house and do it myself. It's been a learning curve. And I think most people that do what I do, I would say 70 to 80% of people that do what I do will not manage their own stuff. It's the brain damage by a lot in what I do. It's where all the employees live. Uh, they live in that management company. They don't, they aren't, they aren't attached to the property. The management company decides where to put the, the employees that they have hired on staff within the management company. So they have all the employees, they have a lot of the risk because they have the day-to-day -day operations and interactions with the public. So most people won't do it. I don't blame them. I love it, but most people just don't want any part of it. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting. You started that kind of right away because, you know, it, it seems that the, I don't know, the conventional thinking on this is that you have to have whatever, a thousand units, two thousand, some some very large number before you get vertically integrated. But I have talked to a couple of people um, that like yourself just wanted that right from the beginning and seem seem happy that they have. And and so I think, you know, maybe, you know, maybe that maybe that says something as to what they're that waiting until you're already, you know, got a ton of units. You don't necessarily need to do that. Right. And, you know, a guy that I uh, I knew from a mastermind I'm part of or was part of, I remember him telling uh, a bunch of us around a table one day, he said, Hey, you know, this management company crap, you know, everybody thinks you go out and start your own management company. You can't really be profitable until you have three to 500 units. Okay. Well, it depends on how you want to do this. If you want to do it by starting with a completely built out team, you have HR, you have marketing, you have operations, you have booking. Sure. It's going to take a bunch of units to get to break even in, in profitability. Well, that's not what I did. I start, I wore every freaking hat. Now I did have an on-site property manager and an on-site maintenance guy. But as far as running the op, uh, the management company, it was all me. I did all the bookkeeping, stumbled through it a little bit. I kind of learned as I went, um, but I did all the bookkeeping. I paid all the bills. Um, I communicated with the property manager every single day. So I wore every single hat. So I've been profitable from day one because when I first start, I can't afford to hire staff in my world. That's the way I wanted to do it. I wanted to grow it from the ground up. And as I had more and more revenue coming in, then I started hiring the bookkeepers and the HR and all these people, the regional managers. 
So I've been profitable from day one and it's extremely profitable, but it is a whole ton of work. Do you, so when you're, when you're doing that in your, you know, so you you find that 48 unit, you've, you've yourself managing, you're, you're kind of create this property management. How, how long did it take you to get the next property? Cause that, that seems like you would have had a lot of, you know, a lot going on. And so continuing acquisitions can be very challenging when you're trying to do all the other pieces, but how did that, how did you, what did you think? What was your experience with that? So, you know, again, I was naive, just like I thought, oh, I'm going to run my own property from the beginning. Well, same thing here. I thought, well, I'll get it. I'll make sure, you know, get three months in, hold a 90% or higher occupancy level and, you know, make sure we're profitable, you know, give that three months and then I'll go grab the next one. Well, it didn't work that way. Even back in 2012, you know, it just took me a while to get that next one. So the next one I didn't buy for, hell, I bought the first one September of 2012. I bought the second one December of 2014. So it took mm -hmm. me a long time. Yeah. I think everybody thinks, oh, I'm just going to jump in and start buying, buying, buying. Right. I think if you do it the way I did it now, th this is the caveat that if you do it the way I did it, if you self-manage. I don't think you should buy your second property until the second year. You need at least 12 months because you need to see the gyrations in the market. You need to understand there is cyclicality to leasing. If you have a lot of people's lease end in December, well, you're in trouble if a lot of them decide to move out and not renew because you don't have a lot of traffic coming in the door in December and January and February. People are hunkered down. It's cold. They're waiting for their tax returns a lot of times. Their kids are in the middle of a school year. They don't want to move their kids. So if you just buy something and two months later, let's say you buy something and you take over uh, March, April, May, the heart of leasing season, you think, oh, this is great. I got this all figured out. Right. And you go buy another property and then you go through a December and you're like, oh my God, I didn't know anything about this, that, that, and this. So I think if you're going to do it the way I do it, I think you should wait at least 12 months to see an entire year's worth of cycles. But if you're going to hire a third-party property management company, you could probably move a lot faster because you're hiring an experienced operator, hopefully, right? You got to hire the right person. But that's why most people, that's one of the big reasons why most people don't want to do their own management because they don't want to go through that learning curve. They just wanted to give it to an experienced operator and be able to focus on acquisitions and asset management. Yeah, it makes sense. I, I mean, it, I, honestly, both sides of it make sense. You just you have to figure out what works for you. As you said, mm -hmm. for you, you wanted that you wanted that piece of the management. You wanted to be vertically integrated. So so you did it. So you made you made it happen. It, it makes makes a lot of sense. And I I think that's a great point about you know sort of especially if you're doing you're wearing all the hats. It's probably going to take you a little bit longer to scale, but that's okay too. There's nothing, there's not a, a necessarily a bad thing. You get to get, you know, sort of a real feel for what's going on. Um, so your, your book, uh, talks a lot about sort of the, the things that people don't talk about, right? Like the, the, the trials and tribulations where you can run into problems, which I think is a great perspective. Do you have any maybe examples of that, that you encountered that you could talk about, you know, that, maybe not even in the book, but things that came up that you weren't prepared for, but, you know, figured out a good solution for. Well, yeah, there's all kinds of things. First of all, you know, again, the book, I want to make sure everybody understands this is hard. This is a real business. People just think it's, it's not a business, it's real estate. No, it's a real estate business. 
It's like starting a bar, opening a restaurant. Now it's not as risky. Those are very risky uh, industries to get involved in, but it's the same thing. You're starting a business. And people just think, oh, it's real estate. It's perfect. Nothing can go wrong. No, that's not true. I find I have found dead people on my properties. Now, I remember I self-managed, so I'll be more involved and in the weeds than most. But I found dead people. I've had arson. I've had carjackings, home invasions, uh, floods, freezes that destroyed 20% of a property in 2021. I managed through COVID. There's a lot of stuff that people just don't know. First of all, you don't know what you don't know. COVID, none of us saw it. There's unforeseen. Um, so, you know, one of the big things that happened for me is, you know, being inexperienced, I don't understand the wire transfer game, right? So I'm going to buy a 250-unit property. It's in the book, and I talk about it all the time because it's the scare story that makes everybody get white-knuckled and, you know, they, they, it scares the hell out of them. So 250-unit property I'm buying. The day of acquisition is there, right? This is the day we're going to close on the property and have this brand new toy. It's my first 200 plus property. And uh, I go to the bank, I initiate the wire, I leave the bank, I drive to the property and I'm hanging out waiting for the all clear that they received the funds and I now own it. Because until I get that, I can't really go in and start running it. It's not technically mine. Well, the wire never got there. And usually my wire will get there between a half hour and about two hours. Somewhere in that window, they'll usually get it. Well, four, five, six, seven hours pass, nothing. Nobody's seen the wire. Nobody can tell me where it is. I called the bank. Nope. They provided all the documentation to show, look, it has left our bank. We do not have it at Bank of America. I'm like, oh, no. $5 million is gone. And it's when you started hearing a lot of people talk. This is about five years ago, I think about how people are intercepting wires by hijacking emails and, you know, spoofing people and grabbing account numbers. And I'm like, oh, I'm ruined. $5 million is gone. It's not my money. It's investor money. Now I've got like two or $300,000 of my own money in there. Yes. But the majority of that money is somebody else's. I don't know where it is. In my mind, I got to make them whole. I lost their money. I'm, I'm busted. I was worth a decent amount, but I don't have $5 million in cash laying somewhere. You know, it's wrapped up in assets. So I'm freaking out. I'm like, oh my God, my career is over and it's only been going for four years and it's all over. Well, luckily, um, the president of the title company had, he remembered suddenly that about six, seven, eight years ago, something similar happened. Let me make a few phone calls. So he made some phone calls and there's a division of the government called OFAC, O-F-A-C. And they're charged with watching money laundering and making sure that bad actors around the world are not laundering money through our country, through our banking system, our financial systems. And so they compared the name of the property that I was buying to a known, uh, a list of known bad actors, and they got a hit. So the name of the property was the name of a known drug cartel in Colombia. I think it was Colombia. And you know, they don't have a customer service department. They're not going to tell me that they took my money and they're going to research it for up to two weeks. They just take it and sit on it. Well, uh, the president of the title company made some phone calls and he figured out where it was. So thank goodness it didn't disappear. But for a good 24 hours, I don't know what's going on. I'm losing my mind. My wife is hyperventilating. Um, and I got to come back to the office now and say, hey, today was the great day. Well, we didn't close. Sorry, but I, I got even better news for you. I have no idea where your money is. I'll figure it out. And I hope the answer I get is a good one. 
But, you know, again, syndicating's a bitch. That's the name of my book. You know, I don't, I don't gloss over things. I want to smack you in the face verbally. So I want you to understand it's a great thing. I love, love what I do, but it is hard. If you do it long enough, you will probably have a deal go bad. Uh, even before you might not get it closed. And if you don't close a deal, there's a lot of sunk costs on the way to getting the deal closed. So if you don't get it closed at the last minute, maybe you did, you figured it out in time to get your earnest money back, but you've paid a syndication attorney, a real estate attorney, due diligence inspections. There's all kinds of money you've spent and it needs to come out of your pocket as the syndicator and get reimbursed for those out-of-pocket expenses after you close the property. So you should do it. A lot of people aren't doing that because they come into this thinking, oh, I can do it with other people's money. I don't have to have any money of my own. That's wrong too. I shouldn't say it's wrong. It's very difficult to do. And most people won't invest with you if you don't have some money. Yeah. I mean, some someone has to have some money to get to get it to closing because there's going to be some earnest money deposit. Most, I, well, if you're in Austin, I'm sure you're having this too. But every deal that I'm part of is, it's there's hard money. So it's like, you're not, getting that back if it doesn't close. And, and plus, as you mentioned, all of those, you know, attorney fees and, and just the the travel or whatever it is, just all that goes into due diligence, there's going to be some money out there. And so if you don't have anything, it it would be, I'm honestly, I know people say that you can do it with other people's money. I'm not really sure how that would exactly work unless you have someone else, someone else has the money and they're <laughs> sort of funding. Yeah, that try going to somebody that has a lot of money and say, I have no experience, no track record. I don't know what I'm doing. I have no money. <laughs> right. Give me money to go do this. Well, what? Right. No. Everybody's being told throughout the country right now, though, you put 14 people in your GP. And, and so I think a lot of the people with the money are making bad decisions by trusting somebody with no experience. Now people trusted me with no experience. So I'm not saying it's a bad thing and nobody will ever do it. Nobody should ever do it. But I'm just saying a lot of people are getting into these deals with non-experienced sponsors thinking, again, oh, it's real estate. They got taught here by that person. Oh, so it's got to be great. No, you don't know who that person is really, unless you know, you're know you intimate friends with them before. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't give somebody brand new with zero experience, zero money. You know, my first deal, I didn't have any experience and I had no job. But I was the largest investor in my own deal. And I did not charge or promote. People get greedy. They want this to happen overnight. They want to buy their first property. And on their first property, make $400 trillion. Quit doing that shit. Do a deal that works and puts money in your investors' pockets. And they will turn into repeat investors. Now, most people will probably not waive a promote on their first deal. But for me, it was important to say to my potential investors, I have no experience. I have no track record. I, I know in theory how to do this, but I've never done it. So we're going to do this together. I will run the whole thing. I will be the deal sponsor, but I'm not going to charge you a promote for it. And I have to be the biggest partner in the deal because I need to make sure you guys understand I have more money on the line than anybody else in this deal. So that's the way I did it. That's what made me feel comfortable, but that's what made my investors decide to take a chance on me as well. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, getting that first deal or two, you might have, you might not make a lot of money. You might not, you you might, I guess in theory might not make any money, but, but you, the idea is that you're building trust with investors and brokers and, and all of the team that allows you to continue to move on to the other deals. So that the first deal is, is more about just getting it done 
and not about getting rich, getting it done. Right. And I, I don't want people to think there's these check boxes that all deals, you'll have a 6% prep or a 7% prep. The split will always be 80, 20. It'll always be this. It'll always be that. It's just a cookie cutter thing. Well, what works for that specific deal? What works for your investors? Okay. It's a good deal, but the numbers aren't where you want, but you think it's still a good deal and you need to make it work. Don't make it work by fudging numbers, right? Don't, don't do stuff like that. But if you have to dig into your promote, I still will dig into my promote if it's a deal that I feel confident in because it's in a transitioning part of the city. And I think this is a great deal. It just doesn't have the strongest cash flow right away. So I may be willing to waive instead of a 30% promote, maybe I'll do a 10% promote. I mean, why do you have to charge a 20, 30, 40% promote? What works for the deal? And what do your investors need in order to invest? They're in charge. Okay, you're in charge. You run the deal. They don't have any say day-to-day operationally, but they are in charge because if they don't give you their money, you can't do the deal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, that's it. It's ultimately your, I think you're, you're in, a, in a way an employee of your investors in the sense that you're, it's your job to make sure that their money is handled responsibly. So I, I think, yeah, you, you can change, you can take take less of an acquisition fee or no acquisition fee. You can change the promotes. You can do all kinds of things to sort of make it work. If you really believe in the deal and you're willing to give up some of, you know, what you're, what, what you would get in compensation because it makes your investors happy. It, it makes total sense. Right. Well, and then that reminds me too, that, okay, I didn't charge a promote, but to your point, I didn't charge an acquisition fee either. I only got paid like they got paid. No acquisition fee, no disposition fee, no refinance fee, no promote. I just got paid based on the percentage of the company that I own. So I own 20% of the company. So I got 20% of all distributions, but yeah. And I mean, that's what I felt comfortable doing. I give a pref now. I didn't give a pref on that deal. I give a pref now. I have acquisition fees now. I have promotes now because I do have a track record. Well, now, now you know what you're doing. And, and obviously uh, given the fact that you've won several awards, you know, on, as a, an apartment owner, what are you doing? What, what do you feel that you and your company does differently from an asset management side that you're, you know, you're getting these awards? How, what are you doing to sort of stand out? A lot of people are being taught this way now, um, but it, it's kind of newer in the industry that people are understanding, treat people like human beings, treat people with respect, you know, when it comes to your residents and, you know, the days of Leona Helmsley running rampant th- throughout the country for the most part are gone, right? There are still some really bad people in this industry. There are some really bad slumlords out there that just want to take advantage of everybody. But for the most part, most people understand now, treat people with respect like a human being and it'll go better for you. So what we've always done, and this has led to these awards, I firmly believe, is we create community and everybody talks about it, but we really, really do create community. And I teach my staff, remember, I have my own management company. So they are truly my staff. They aren't the management company's staff that sits on my property. They're my staff. So I have a lot of control in how I want the property run and how my my staff gets treated. So I talk to them all the time ad nauseum about the word empathy. When something comes up, if what the rule book says, right? You know, so we have a handbook, an employee handbook. It says, this is what you do when this happens and that happens and that happens. Always follow it until you can't follow it. And they always look at me cross-eyed. What the hell does that mean? If following the standard operating procedure, the rule, 
is the wrong thing to do in that situation for this, the human being sitting on the other side of the desk with you. Don't do it. Do what is right to take care of that human being the way you would expect to be taken care of, period. And if you do that, explain why you didn't follow the rules. And as long as there is a, a heart behind the decision, there's empathy behind the decision, I'm okay with that. Even if it's a decision, I think, ah, that's probably not the right. I want you to make decisions. I need to empower you enough to make decisions or I get bogged out. I can't keep moving in my role. But the empathy, people think, well, I can't believe you just did that. Well, it was the right thing to do for you. Well, that that community that starts to build that community. They see they're there, that we are there for them. We're listening to them. And it's all about them. Just like, you know, the deal doesn't work without the investor. The property doesn't work without the tenant without the resident. So you got to take care of them, you know, during COVID and like May, June, maybe of 2020, I think it was one of my property managers on our, our weekly call said, Hey, I got an idea. I'd like to try. I'm like, okay, what's that? He goes, ah, you know, I was thinking about a, uh, a farmer's market. And I know there's somebody I saw on Facebook that is a local farmer here in San Antonio. And uh, they set up on the weekends and mall parking lots or different parks and do, you know, the whole uh, farmer's market thing. It's like, oh, okay. And she goes, well, I'd like to see if they would be willing to come out into an apartment complex. Well, I got a parking lot or I've got grassy area. Maybe they'd be willing to come out to ours. I was like, oh, hell, I love that. Reach out, see if they'll do it. So she reached out. They agreed. You know, they're like everybody else. They're trying to make a dollar too. The whole world shut down in 2020. They're starving as farmers. So, you know, they're like anything I can do. So yeah, I'll definitely come. So we brought them out to every one of our properties. And what we did is we told all the residents, this is what's going on next week. We're going to have this farm come out, set up a little farmer's market for you in the parking lot. We actually did it in the parking lot. And what we're going to do is everybody that wants to come out, we're going to give you a $10 chit or voucher that you could take to the, the, the farm stand. And we're going to cover your first $10 of food that you buy from this farm. It was incredibly successful. People loved it because they saw my whole world is melting down around me. I may have been laid off from my job, but at least the place that I live, they're bringing food to me and they're buying food for me. It's community. I want them to know we care. We know they're going through some shit right now. We all are. I was scared for my staff, but we we needed to show that we hear them because we want them to keep paying rent. Let's just be honest. I don't want them to quit paying rent because the government said they don't have to pay rent because I can't evict your ass. Right. So I needed to, uh, to be human and make sure they understand we're good people. We're not the rich guy sitting in an ivory tower. We're, you know, we we care. And this is the way we make our money like you do going to work at your job. No, I love everything about that. And I think it's just, it, it's, it's a win all around, right? The, the tenants are happy. They're getting, as you said, they're getting food and some, and some paid for your employees are happy because you're empowering them to have these ideas and, and seeing that it's so successful. You're happy because you have happy people, happy tenants that are going to pay rent and your employees are going to work hard for you when you're, you know, sort of empowering them and treating them with empathy. I think it's it, I, this stuff doesn't this stuff isn't what gets talked about so much in in business. I 
I, I don't know if you're a Gary V fan, but he, oh, huge, he, yeah, like his he's my guy. His stuff, everything. I mean, all the all the stuff that he puts out there now about just you know you don't you don't have to be the asshole boss. Like that's actually not <laughs> that's not beneficial to anyone. And it's like, yeah, of course it's not. It's like I I just love that stuff. I think you know everyone does need to be treated like a human. And and it's uh yeah we 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 bought a property and I I I was shocked. I was shocked at what the previous owners had not done for the tenant base and just, but kept raising rents. And I was just like, yeah, like if nothing else, we buy this deal and make these people lives better. Like it's kind of like, it just become, you get that human element into it too. And, and, and by doing that, then I I think also you can be human and still make money. Well, it's the servant heart, right? If, if I take care of other people, they will take care of me financially. I will make money because I care about you. Right. But let's go back to, yeah, the the uh, the farmer that came out. Right. Yes, it helped the residents. It helped me. It helped my staff. But one step further, I'm supporting a local farmer. Yep. yep. That's Absolutely. huge. Even before COVID, yep. Absolutely. local farmers need to be supported. And that was a way for us. Yeah. Like you said, it was a full circle thing. Everybody won from that. So we're always looking for things like that to do, not just to differentiate ourselves from our competition, but let's not make any, you know, let's not lie about that. That's behind a lot of the decisions. What can I do that's better than my competition? But also I'm always trying to think of what can I do to surprise my residents to make them go, holy shit. I cannot believe you just did that for me. They don't want to leave because they've had so many bad experiences like your seller that they were treated like dirt. Oh, I'm actually a place that cares about me. They legitimately care about me. I will take the rent increase that comes. It sucks, but man, I got a good thing here. It makes you more profitable. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, it's just, you're not going to have that. You're not going to have as much turnover, therefore not have as much vacancy, not spend as much money on unit turns. I mean, it's just people sometimes I think don't see the forest through the trees in that it is actually doing these these gestures like you spent a little bit of money but you made everyone happy like everyone benefited from that you're going to have you know good tenant retention they're going to hopefully tell their friends so that when you do have a vacancy you've got now now they're like hey this guy, you know what he he brought us a, a a farmers market in the middle of covid like that and, and that's how you win awards that's yeah yeah <laughs> that's and, what it is and some strategy here right so when you do these things that are you're doing them for the right reasons, but you still need to try to capitalize on that PR. Let, again, let's be honest. This is a business we are running. Yep. So anytime we do something like this, we try to set up as close as we can to the main entrance or the street or the competition. Because I want the whole freaking neighborhood to see what we're doing. You know, we throw big parties once a year, even during one, not, not during COVID. We throw one big bash every year at every single property. We'll spend 10 to $20 per resident. We will have food trucks come out. We will have DJs come out, face painters. We we have a blast and we we blow it out, but we do it like the food trucks. We don't bring them onto the property. We tell them you're going to sit out front. Residents will come to you because I, again, want everybody that lives in the neighborhood driving home to their other apartment complex where they live. Oh, my, my apartment complex doesn't do that shit for me. Always think about what you're doing. Do it for the right reason for the human being. But then you got to figure out ways to show the world that you do care and that you are different. Yeah, yeah no, it makes total sense. I, I, it's a funny story, but at one point we, we were living in an apartment. We were looking for a, a new apartment uh, a few years back. And 
we went to a place and they're like, oh, we get a food truck every Wednesday night. They don't even they didn't pay for the food truck. They just set it up. So a food truck was there every Wednesday night. And I was like, this is where we'll live because, yeah. <laughs> because it's, it's, it's not, it's not easy to stand out, but some of these, it, or maybe it is easy to stand out because nobody necessarily puts the effort to stand out, but you don't have to do crazy extravagant things to, to necessarily stand out. It's little stuff like that. Uh, you know, in your farmer's market, I mean, it's just, yeah, it, it makes total sense. Well, a lot of my like analytical nerdy friends will say, oh, what, there's no ROI on that. Oh my God, put your spreadsheet away, dude. <laughs> It's not all about a freaking ROI, that a tangible ROI. It's all about an ROI, right? Because again, yes, the community, they don't want to leave. We are, it's anecdotal, right? I can't point to it made that many dollars for me. There is no ROI. I can apply to this kind of thing, but I guarantee I'm more profitable. So that's where a lot of um, B personalities, kind of that engineer brain, everything's got to make like, uh, uh, what am I trying to say? Uh, scientific sense. Right. It has to it has to fit into a spreadsheet. No, it doesn't. You're dealing with humans. Take care of humans. Gary Vaynerchuk doing the right thing is always the right thing. It'll always pay off. Don't always look for the ROI. Just know I don't know how it's going to benefit us, but it's going to benefit us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, being being good, good to people will pay will pay back off mm-hmm. in some way. It, it's for sure. It's for yeah. sure the truth. Uh, you know, very, very cool. Well, Bruce, let me let me switch gears so I don't keep you here all day. But I, I want to switch to the part where I get to ask you the questions that I ask each guest. And the first one is uh, based on the name of the show being "Know Your Why." What is your why? What what drives you towards success and you know sort of the, the growth in the business? Well, the initial why was you know I wanted my time back. You know, I worked hundred hour weeks for somebody else, and I hated my life. I hated everything about it. I was saving good money. I was investing, and in, I was doing well with my investments. But I hated my life. So I was doing it to to gain control of my schedule, my calendar. You know, I got to drive my, uh, sorry, I got to drive my daughter to school every day and pick her up because I wasn't working 110 hours a week for somebody else. That you can't really put a dollar amount on that, but it's because I made dollars for myself as an entrepreneur that I got to do that. It was in high school. It was her sophomore year of high school. She still hadn't gotten her license yet. So that was bonding time for me. That's Mm -hmm. why now people are probably doing some math that are listening going, oh, wait a minute. You started at 42 and you weren't married. You didn't have any kids. I adopted one of my wife's daughters and I got to drive her to school every single day. So that's what I was looking for. I was looking for more balance in my life, more control in my life, the freedom to do what I want to and help people in a, in a bigger way than I've ever been able to do before. But now that we've been doing this for a while, I have a, uh, an autistic stepdaughter who is 26 years old. She's high functioning. Um, But what we want to do now, we realize how expensive it is to give the proper care and support that somebody like our daughter needs. It's expensive. We spent $100,000 on her care one year. Most people can't afford that. And I'm completely aware of that. So what we're, we're hoping to do, and I've been talking about this for a while. It just hasn't happened yet. But hopefully in the next few years, we want to start a foundation for adults with intellectual disabilities. It can be Down syndrome. It can be uh, maybe a brain injury or autism. We want to have a place where they can live with people like them 
in a small community of maybe 12 to 24 units, maybe 36 units at the very largest, but they're all, all the residents are there and they're similar in some way. They have a shared thing that they can bond with. They can make friends with. Um, and we're, we want to create this apartment community for them on a sliding affordability scale. Cause again, it all started because we started realizing how expensive this really was. If you work at McDonald's, nothing wrong with that, but you can't afford to have your child not live in your basement. You can't afford to put them in their own apartment. Probably, you know, there's a chance you're going to get to have your child stay there for free. Now, if you make $250,000 a year in the tech industry, you're going to pay market rent, right? It's going to be a nonprofit, but see, that's kind of our why. Now we're trying to get to that point. The bigger we get, the more people we get hire provide great jobs for our staff. It gives us more freedom to start focusing on other things like that, where our heart really is. I love it. I love it. I think that's, uh, I, I, a lot of people, you know, have we, we, our whys shift over time, right? You, you're, you know, sort of start off when you start in this world, it's, it's, you know, one thing and it, then it seems to almost always turn towards impact and giving back and all of that, which is like, I, I can't wait to be at that point. I can't wait right. to be, I can't be, wait to be, you know, talking to you about, Hey, let's, let, let me be a part of this. Let me, <laughs> let, let me be in on this. I, that's an amazing thing to do. I, I love it. So uh, regardless, when you get there, please talk to me about it. I, I, I love that. I love that. Um, second question. Tell us something about yourself that maybe isn't common knowledge, uh, a special skill, a hobby, something or something that you would like to do, uh, like to learn that, that, that the, the, lets the world know you a little better. <clears throat> huh. um, I've probably been asked this before, but I never remember what to say. I don't know what to say with, you know, what, you know, because I'm an open book. That's the problem. I don't hide anything from anybody. Now, I'm not going to give you my damn social security number, of course. But in the book, I tell you, I grew up in the projects. I tell you stories about how there were toys for tots waiting for me on my on my doorstep when I got home from grocery shopping with my mom and just broke down and just flipped the freak out as a 13-year-old boy. I share everything. Um, so I guess it's in the book, but I mean, one thing, you know, we're talking about why I want to own a baseball team. You know, Gary Vandertruck wants to own the Jets. I don't want to own the Jets. It's going to be $5 billion. I want to own a double A AA or a triple A baseball team at some point. And really it's, and I talk about this in the book too. It's just another syndication. If I choose, now, I can go out and do it by myself, but if I'm buying 20 to $40 million assets right now in an apartment complex, well, a triple A baseball team, double A baseball team will probably cost me five to 20 million. Well, that's what I'm doing now. Right. So I can just take what I'm learning here and that will transfer over to doing a syndication to own a baseball team. So that's something that I'm, I'm aiming for in the next, hopefully five to seven years. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, when people hear this, how can they get a hold of you? And we'll, we'll put, we'll put kind of all your links in, in the uh, show notes, but what's the best way to reach out? So, you know, you can go to apartmentguy.com. So it's apt-guy.com. You can see what we're up to. We're about to launch a very low cost monthly subscription service for about 20 to $50, somewhere in that area that if you become a member of streetversity.com, it's not launched yet, but it's streetversity.com for 25 to 50 bucks a month, whatever it's going to be, something very small. You're going to get access to all the online education I've ever created that I used to sell for 500 to two or $3,000. 
Well, for maybe 25 bucks a month, you get access to all of that. So streetversity.com, watch out for that. That's coming soon. Um, I listen to Gary Vaynerchuk finally, and I'm on TikTok. Yes, I'm a 53-year-old man, but I am on TikTok. And I got to tell you, it's not just 12-year-old kids doing you know trend dances. There's a lot of cool stuff going on there. And it is my favorite social media outlet right now, really? hands down by a landslide. So uh, it's uh, just look for Bruce Apartment Guy Peterson there or Instagram, apt.guy. People keep telling me to get on TikTok. I'm like, <laughs> I bought I, that shit, I'm but like, man, I love I it. I really do. Yeah, good. I mean, it. <laughs> at least we're in a similar demographics. So maybe that's a little more convincing when I'm like, like, students or something like people, young people that I work with. And they're like, yeah, you should get on TikTok. I'm like, mm, have you, do you know how old I am? I don't think that's, I don't think that's the thing, but yeah, no, <laughs> that's a little bit more, more compelling than I'll have to give it a try at some point. Yeah. Mine is very dry. I don't do all the goofy, funny crap. You know, I just, uh, I teach, you know, I'm teaching yeah. people things in little snippets on, uh, on TikTok, uh, and, the interaction is great. Now you're, you know, I got haters, of course, you know, you have cynical people that think there's something in this for you. Why are you doing it? No. But anyways, I love TikTok. That's very funny. Uh, well, when I, if I get TikTok, I will, you will be my first, <laughs> first person I, I connect with. Um, final question, Bruce, what would be a piece of advice you would give to someone who is, uh, you know, kind of getting started in, into real estate um, and, and you want to, compel them to succeed and, and sort of push forward to, to reach the levels of success that you have? Well, the big thing, and everybody talks about this, but it's, it's just so appropriate that I, I was speaking at an event in Houston last night. The guy comes up afterwards and he's, you know, asking all these questions about where the market is, what interest rates are doing, you know, where cap rates going. And I, I can just, you know, my EQ is very high and, I, and I'm reading this guy and he's a very nice guy. He's got legitimate questions, but I finally looked at him. I said, look, you're a very strong B personality. You're very analytically brained. Uh, and, you know, what I would call kind of an engineer's brain. You're going to get stuck because you're going to want everything contingency planned. You have to know exactly what's going to happen in three years and what to do when it does happen. It's impossible. You can't do that. There's no way. You know, when I take a new deal to, to market, basically, right, I'm, I'm raising money on my next deal. I will show you what I figure is going to happen over the hold period. Maybe it's a five-year hold period or 10-year hold period. I'll show you what I assume will happen through my experience and my knowledge and my, uh, my track record. But let's be honest. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. COVID could hit again in 2023 and shut us all down. Yeah. Hell, uh, Putin could throw a nuke at our heads. We don't know what's going to happen. So, you have to learn as much as you can to a degree, but then at some point you just got to go. But I, 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 I don't have all the answers. You're never going to have all the answers. Dude, I've been doing this for a decade. I don't have all the answers. I'm not even close to having all the answers. You'll never have all the answers. You just got to move and know that when something goes wrong, because it's going to go wrong, dead people, the government takes $5 million of my money. Shit's going to go wrong. Don't hide. Don't get scared. Don't close your eyes. It'll go away. It's not going to go away. Just understand things will go wrong, but you're a smart person. You're a driven person and you'll figure it out. So that's the biggest thing for me is you just got to have faith in yourself. 
you know, me, I was successful in everything I've ever tried in my life. And I had to understand that this is just the next thing. I was nervous as hell doing my first deal. I wasn't scared, but I was very nervous because I'd never done it, but I've now done it. So it's just the next skill I had to conquer. And that's it. So just get out there and take a chance. Educated chance, but take a chance. Right. right. Don't, don't do it without knowing anything, but yeah, don't, don't, <laughs> yeah. Let, uh, don't let analysis paralysis hold you up. So yep. um, that's great. That's great piece of advice, Bruce. Thank you. And, and thank you for your time today. Thank you for coming on the show. I, I really appreciate everything that you've shared. And uh, I'm sure people are going to really enjoy this episode. Well, thanks for having me on. If there's ever anything you need from me, let me know. Absolutely. All right. With that, we will sign out. I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you.